Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynical Podcast, coming to you today from the 2018 Harvard College China Forum in Boston, Massachusetts. Let's hear you folks make a little noise. <laughs> all right, all right. I am Kaiser Guo, and I am honored to have been asked to moderate the International Relations Panel at the Forum this year. The Cynical Podcast, of course, is a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, and we are produced in partnership with SupChina, the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China through our free daily email newsletter or with our premium SupChina Access membership. SupChina is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We are today at a fascinating moment in China's international relations. For the first three decades that followed Deng Xiaoping's ascent to primacy in the Chinese leadership, China hewed to his famous dictum, Taoguang Yanghui, uh, to hide your power and bide your time, as it's frequently, if not been literally translated, uh, at least from the time that Xi Jinping became general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party in 2013, uh, and arguably really a few years earlier, inarguably by the time of the 19th Party Congress last last fall, well, we've seen a much more assertive China, one that has backed up its controversial claims in the South China Sea, has pursued the very broad, very far-reaching Belt and Road Initiative, and more recently has taken up the banner of economic globalization. So this advance is coming at a time of retrenchment or even withdrawal by the current U.S. administration, of course, but also at a time when vital security problems remain far from resolved, maybe most notably on the Korean Peninsula. And if we look at the broader global context, the New World Order, which was proclaimed by George H.W. Bush after the end of the Cold War, is now itself over and done. And in many parts of the world, we've seen deeply illiberal strongmen bolstered by populist and nationalist movements, groundswells, who have come to power in Russia, in Turkey, in Hungary, and other Eastern European states, arguably also in India, and arguably even in the United States. Uh, many policymakers here in the U.S., as well as many influential China watchers, have even begun to really question the very wisdom of engagement and have been wondering whether we were wrong to place faith in it in the 1970s and again in the 1990s after Tiananmen. And a growing chorus on both sides of the aisle here in the U.S. are ready to radically rethink engagement and, and are now advocating instead for for confrontation, for containment in a more robust way of, of China. And, of course, there is the incipient trade war, which you've already heard so much about today. There's some debate over whether it's already begun, as many now say, or whether at this late stage in the game it's in any way avoidable. Uh, in any case, it's more urgent than ever, I think, for us to understand how China is navigating this dynamic situation, how it evaluates the threats and the opportunities now available to it. And so I'm delighted to introduce you to our excellent panel Excellent, but for the fact that it is all male. 
I, I want it's noted that some of us protested this fact and asked very early on that it be made more diverse, but that the organizers did make some effort toward that, but were not, I'm afraid, ultimately successful. Uh, you can do better next time, I think. Uh, no excuses next time, right? <laughs> right. Good. In any case, our panel today. First, I'd like to introduce immediately to my left. Uh, Dr. Jiang Changjian, who is perhaps best known today as the host of the fantastically popular show on Jiangsu Television, Zuichangdanao, or Super Brain, in which people with off-the-charts IQs compete in astonishing feats of, of, of mathematical, logical, mnemonic prowess and make the rest of us feel incredibly stupid. No. <laughs> <laughs> or I, I suppose for some of us, it's actually inspiring. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm, I'm in the feeling stupid camp. Uh, if you haven't seen the show, though, it's really mind-blowing, and I highly recommend it. He's also associate professor at the School of International Relations and Public Affairs at Fulan University. Professor Jiang, uh, let's just call you Chang Jian through this yeah. whole thing, if you don't mind. Uh, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. So this is my first time to do this show. And I so think I you... get used to uh, the show under the camera. Not just the risk way. Right, right. So just treat this as a camera and we're, we're good. Okay. So uh, <laughs> he, I think Dr. Dr. Zhang has bravely decided he's going to eventually do this in English, not his first language. But uh, I'm, I'm very happy that he's done this because it's a podcast we can't subtitle. I'll try. Right. <laughs> also joining us for the first time is Ira Kasoff. Ira is Senior Counselor and member of APCO Worldwide's International Advisory Council and is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Asia at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Ira, great to have you here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I apologize for not being a woman. Okay. <laughs> I mean, at least some of us have hair like a woman. Uh, Tony Seish is next. Uh, he's director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, and he's Daewoo Professor of International Affairs at the Kennedy School at Harvard University. He is a prolific commentator on China's politics and international relations, a very well-regarded scholar. I have long wanted to have him on the show. Tony, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Um, so there are many, many geographies that I would love to talk about, but since time is limited, we're going to have to be somewhat selective. Let's start with the, the topic of China's overall orientation. And let's start with you, uh, Dr. Jiang Changjie. Uh, so in the introduction just now, I talked about the end of Taoguang Yanghui, or hide your strength and bide your time. First of all, do you agree with this characterization? Is that period over uh, now? Can I modify your concept of the Taoguang Yanghui yeah, in English? Absolutely. I would like to say Taoguang Yanghui is a keep low profile. Not okay. just high power. If you say high power, that means today I hide power. That tomorrow I will show my power. So I would like to say Taoguang Yanghui is a keep low profile. Okay. But is the profile still being kept low? I think so. Okay. So you On many issues, the China still humble and keep, profile, keep low profile. Oh, that, that's very interesting. Uh, I mean, do, do, you, do you think that the, the changes that we have seen, because you, sure, maybe a low profile still in some issues, but it's raised its profile in other areas. And in, in those areas in which it's raised it, do you attribute this to the person of Xi Jinping? Do you attribute it maybe to broader forces, a broader sort of balance of power to China's economic ascent? Or, or what do you think is causing this shift, if indeed you see a shift? <laughs> so... Uh, if I say something about the China issues, it's maybe not so uh, balanced. So I leave this question to you two guys. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We won't get you in any trouble. I mean, if I were to chip in, I, I would say looking at it externally, I think there's been a very significant shift in behavior. But I don't think it originated with Xi Jinping. I mean, I think it uh, occurred 
really around 2008, 2009, and I think it's quite justifiable, quite understandable. China is very proud of its achievements over the period of time. Um, and of course, you had at that point the global financial crisis and, and basically set off the United States of America. And I think that gave the Chinese government great confidence in the fact that perhaps their model was going to be very effective, that it didn't have to concentrate so much on thinking about what America did or how America did it or more broadly how the West did it. And so I think from that time, you saw a kind of increasing confidence, not just with the government, but also from Chinese people uh, about their own achievements, what they were doing. And that's played through, I think, in positive ways, in the sense that China has been very engaged in discussions uh, around things such as climate change, and in other ways which are more problematic, for example, around territorial claims uh, in the South China Seas and elsewhere, I mean, to the point where it clearly upset some of the other Southeast Asian uh, countries, and some of those uh, people in those countries talked about a concern whether China was really abandoning its long-term objectives for short-term gains. So, you know, I don't think that's keeping a low profile. Um, it's, uh, and as I said, I think it's positive, and I think it's also had uh, some problematic aspects to it. And you know, it relates to the kind of churn and the friction that we're seeing when you combine that with some of the behavior uh, by the United States in the recent period. Ira, uh, this period, 2008-2009, I think you would probably agree was sort of an inflection point, yeah? Uh, yeah. yeah and if I remember correctly, you were actually uh, part, I mean, as you were, you were at Commerce at the time and you were, in, look, you were Assistant Deputy for Asia, and you were part of the SNED dialogues at that time, at, at the end of 2008, is that right? That's right. Actually, at that time, it was the SED. Oh, right. A Not big change yet, was right. to change it to the SNED under Obama, but that's a, that's a very technical <laughs> point. Um, but yeah, we had um, the Strategic Economic Dialogue, which was chaired by, on the U.S. side by uh, Secretary Paulson, Secretary of Treasury, and on the Chinese side by Wang Qishan. Um, and the last meeting of that dialogue was in December of 2008, which was after the presidential election. So the U.S. side the cabinet secretaries were all what we call lame ducks. They were on the way out. And it was also uh, right in the middle of this financial crisis where we were all worried about whether the economy was going to melt down completely. And in the previous meetings of the SED, which took place twice a year, the US side led by Secretary Paulson would generally push the Chinese to try to open up markets and, uh, and uh, increase capital flows and so on and so forth. And at the December 2008 meeting, we basically had to sit there and listen while Wang Qishan lectured us and pointed his finger and said, you have been our teachers, but look what you've done to international markets, and uh, you are no longer our teachers. And we basically had to just sit there. So I think that was actually a very tangible inflection point that we could see. Yeah, I've often pointed to that moment, um, I guess in August and September of 2008, when you know, I think the, the closing ceremonies of the Beijing Olympics, you know, Beijing's great coming out party, as they talked about, uh, took place almost three weeks to the day before the collapse of Lehman Brothers. It's a very kind of interesting so moment. So I, I have one point I should add. So uh, what I mean about the uh, keep the low provide, um, it is necessary mean is not necessary mean that the China government, even the President Xi Jinping, if they made some. Uh, core interest of China, we should keep low profile, okay? We still, we must continue step on the hard line to protect our core interest. That's very important. 
and we also seek the multilateral resolution to some big challenges we are facing up, not just the goal with the single lateral resolution. Yeah, no unilateralism, I understand. Um, so Ira, uh, you've worked, as we said, in the, in the Department of Commerce, and so you're the natural person to ask this next question. Um, you know, let's deal with the, the elephant in the room, as it were, uh, this current state of trade between the U.S. and China. We know that things have, have escalated uh, since the announcement of steel and aluminum tariffs. There was the $60 billion in punitive 301 tariffs that were announced by President Trump in late March, and then China's announcement of retaliatory tariffs in roughly that same amount. And then, just uh, Thursday night, the other night, uh, Trump threatened to impose new tariffs amounting to $100 billion. Can, can we dispense with the word looming uh, it's, and call this a trade war already underway and put, put us in the heads of the principal actors here in this, in this incipient trade war, if you would, and give us your sense for how uh, you think this plays out. I don't like to try to get into the head of Donald Trump. It's a very dangerous, <laughs> dangerous place. And I, I, might I don't never, want to get into his anything. Yeah, I might not get out. Um, I, I, I still I think we still need to call it a looming trade war. I don't think we're quite into it yet. Okay. Um, the um, the, the uh, 301 report that you referred to, uh, where the USDR has put out, I think, something like 1,200 items that will be subject to these tariffs, uh, actually won't take effect until late May. Um, so there's now about six weeks before they take effect, during which time the two sides can negotiate and try to avert a trade war. Now, it's, it's gotten uh, much hotter, uh, again, as you mentioned, because President Trump uh, responded to China's response by saying, okay, we're going to hit another $100 billion worth of products. Uh, that is not a formal uh, proposal even yet. That ha in order for it to become formalized, first USTR would again need to put out a report for public comment. Um, but let me just maybe make uh, one more comment before we leave this subject, or a couple of comments. One is, um, I think there are really two aspects to this, at least from the U.S. Uh, perspective. One is the bilateral trade deficit itself. Uh, President Trump keeps throwing out the number of $500 billion, which is actually nonsense. The trade deficit, according to official U.S. trade statistics, is about $350 billion. Um, and so, so that's one aspect. And in my view, the focus on that is misguided. Um, but there's another aspect, which is the uh, uh, a focus on China's industrial policy, and specifically the Made in China 2025 policy, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. I think is a, a more serious long-term issue. But so let me just talk about the trade deficit briefly. Maybe we can save the industrial policy for uh, for later. Um, but as I said, it's about 350 billion dollars. Although trade statistics, without getting too technical, they're kind of misleading, because. China is actually the final assembly point for a lot of products that get exported to the U.S. But if you really break it down, about 40% of those products actually are uh, inputs that come from other countries, are sent to China, and then assembled into fi final products and sent to the U.S. So you really have three numbers. You have Donald Trump's $500 billion, which is made up. You have the official $350 billion number, which is a little bit misleading. The real number of the value added in China is about $200 billion, roughly. And that's, those are equate to jobs, basically. So it's still a big trade deficit, but it's not as big as, uh, as it's made out to be. Right. And conveniently, the, the, the value-added deficit is $150 billion less, which is $150 billion less than Trump's nominal. So, uh, and that $150 billion is the total value of threatened uh, 
tariffs so far. So maybe this is this is the way he gracefully satires. I'm not sure he's. I don't think he quite understands it. To, quite understands right, it right. to that level. But anyway. but you know, you, you mentioned made in in China 2025, and I think there are a lot of commentators who have now sort of zeroed in on this as the ultimate. Really, I mean, this is what the 301 report was ultimately about, even though it didn't name. Uh, uh, the U.S. has always opposed industrial policy, right? I mean, if we remember back to the 1980s, the big bugbear for them was Japan's MITI, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, right? Yes. Uh, so this is something that that's that the U.S. has opposed. But does the U.S. not itself engage in some forms of, of industrial policy and just not call it that? And and what what do you think explains the hostility to uh, you know what many other countries do, which is you know big champions? plan, subsidize key technologies that they think are going to be uh, important in the future isn't, seems a, an incredibly sensible approach, does it not? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I should note that I was actually posted at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo when we were fighting with MITI back in the, uh, in the early 90s, so I do have some experience with that. Um, the U.S., you could argue that the U.S. does practice some industrial policy, but I think not to the extent that Japan did or that China is, uh, is doing now. And, and I personally think that the Made in China uh, 2025 plan is a more long-term, almost an existential uh, threat to the U.S. because what China is looking to do is to dominate emerging high-technology industries. These are artificial uh, intelligence, big data, that's advanced right, that's robotics, right, that's genomics, right. things like that. Right? And so, so if you look at the U.S. TR report, the 301 report that came out, really f goes into great detail on this and, and talks about for example, forced technology transfer, theft of intellectual property, uh, uh, license problems with licensing agreements, and so forth, and really uh, tries to get at this problem in several ways. One is the tariffs that we've uh, we've touched on, but in addition, uh, they're bringing a WTO case. They're trying to um, to restrict China's acquisition of of sensitive technologies from uh, from the U.S. Uh, and so forth. It, because it, putting tariffs on Chinese products, we can come back to that, that is basically not going to bring jobs back to the U.S. But the real threat to the U.S. is if China dominates these emerging industries the way it did low-cost manufacturing, that is basically a, an attack on the U.S. head-on. That's where the U.S. strength lies. Very good. I mean, so I want to uh, ask Tony one question before we move back back to, to Dr. Zhang. Uh, Tony, what's your sense of Beijing's response so far to the tariff announcements? I mean, uh, many media outlets in the U.S. have focused on the fact that China's tariffs have largely targeted red states. Of course, Boeing is not in a red state. It's in, it's in the state of Washington. But other than that, I mean, if you look at pork, corn, especially soybeans, uh, many of these are, are states that either went for Trump and went for uh, Ryan, uh, I mean, Romney and Ryan in, in 2012, but also uh, swing states, as, you know, in, in the Midwest, the, the Michigans, the uh, the uh, Wisconsin's, Pennsylvanians, and the Ohio's. Uh, what do you make of 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 the, this this claim by the United States? This is sort of hitting below the belt and meddling effectively internal U.S. politics. Is this going to backfire? Maybe on China? I don't think it's going to backfire. Uh, before I come to answer that, though, I, I want to make a broader point, and that is that I think that the elites in the U.S. and also in the West generally have been losing the debate about the value of trade. Because if we think back, um, you know, President, President Trump at least has been consistent on one thing, and that's his misunderstanding of trade. 
and what he wants to see in terms of trade agreements. But remember, Hillary Clinton also ran on a platform that she was going to pull us out of uh, TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. So I think what has happened is that there's a general loss of the debate where the values and the long-term benefits of trade are being pushed to one side and people are beginning to focus on uh, dislocation, unemployment, which of course happens. Uh, so I really think there's a, a very serious job to be done by elites in the West to uh, claw back and win back some of the arguments around these issues. Now, coming more specifically then to your question, I mean, the first thing, of course, is if President Trump goes ahead with another 100 billion of tariffs and China responds, China's going to run out of U.S. exports uh, that it can put tariffs on because if there is only 150 billion exported from the U.S., uh, that's pretty much filled up with tariffs already. So then it's going to have to move to a second strategy, which is um, focusing on companies that are American companies producing within China. And there I think the problem is that um, for American investors in China, it's part of a strategic global plan. Most of the things are integrated with corporate headquarters. They may be part of the global value chain, their production chain. So it could damage them really badly if one got into a more extensive trade war. If you look by contrast to Chinese investments into America, they're not integrated in the same way into Chinese businesses. And um, uh, they've been very ad hoc. You know, they're rather like the early Japanese investments paying over the over the odds for uh, properties. Yeah, exactly. And so it would not hit the Chinese economy in quite the same way. Then you're right. I mean, I think it is true that they've been very strategic. I heard that they'd already set up a task force before President Trump took over to look at this question of if tariffs came in, uh, where could they respond most effectively? I saw a figure recently that something like 82% of counties that voted for Trump uh, are affected by the tariffs, so they've clearly targeted very well. I think there's two other things, though, which are important to bear in mind in the relationship with this. And the first of these is that there's a broader response going on, and this relates to Ira's point about emerging industries and standards, and that's the Belt and Road Initiative. I think this is tremendously important in the way China sees its future developing. And whether it's right or wrong, I think one of the things it's learned from uh, other countries when they've been the dominant economy is they've tended to set global standards in industries. Mm -hmm. And I think China's looking to push that through Belt and Road, and I think they hope that that will upgrade uh, their own domestic industries as a result. So I think there's a broader strategy which is actually taking place uh, and is uh, going on here um, than just uh, this immediate response to... Um, the question of the tariffs and responses to tariffs. And I cannot for the life of me remember what the second point was that I was going to make. <laughs> can, I, can I make one more point on you this can, before we move sure. on? Okay. Uh, while you're thinking of yours. Um, Tony quite rightly pointed out um, what the Chinese could do if, if we do, in fact, enter a trade war, i.e. hit American companies that are operating in China. If you just think about Apple or GM, how big their sales are in China of products that are actually manufactured in China. So they're not exports, but they still are critical to the success of those companies. But there's, a, there's even a, a third uh, tool in the Chinese toolkit, which is much more consequential. China holds roughly $1.2 trillion of U.S. debt. Um, and mm. 
all they would need to do is not show up at treasury auctions to send the message that uh, we can really hurt the U.S. economy. And then ultimately, if they really uh, wanted to hurt the U.S. economy, they could start selling down some of their holdings. Now, that would hurt China as well. Um, but the U.S. would suffer much more. I mean, interest rates would, would take off in this country if China were to do that. Do you, do you think that Trump, Lighthizer, all these folks, do they understand that any country that is going to run such enormous deficits is going to have to borrow and that the only countries that they borrow from are there, it is a natural they will create trade deficits that's simply it's almost an ironclad economic law i think um, do they not understand this this basic principle my my guess is that uh, lighthizer understands that I, I don't want to get into trump's head as i said but i don't think <laughs> i don't think he does understand it if you look at yeah. at his uh, rhetoric or his positions. He's changed his position over time on almost everything. The one area where he has not changed his position is bilateral trade, going all the way back to the 80s with Japan. Um, he has, Still sees it as a zero-sum game. Right? Yeah, he thinks it's a zero-sum game. A trade surplus means you're a winner. A trade deficit means you're a loser. And of course, we know he likes winners. Uh, and I don't think he thinks beyond that. I don't think he understands what lies uh, uh, below that and what the Consequences are of these uh, of these actions. Well, and we have of course, he's got Peter Navarro whispering in his ear, yes, who's yes. always maintained a pretty simplistic stance uh, on trade and role of trade. Yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, uh, Dr. Zhang, we we have a yeah. lot of trouble understanding Trump here in America. I can't <laughs> imagine what it's like to try to to understand him in China. I think that it, it's probably fair to say that when he first was was elected. Uh, there was a lot of mad scrambling in Beijing. They tried. It's to normal. Uh, both sides have some problem, especially at the early stage of new presidency. Yeah, that's absolutely yeah. normal. But I mean, but the the, yeah. the radical shifts back and forth. I mean, they they probably they thought that they had his number for a while. They had him dialed, and they figured out that maybe they could serve his his vanity with a little flattery <laughs> and, and so forth, and that he would yeah. you know be a shumao. Yeah, you know, China is not my subject. Right. I I will give a broad response to these issues. Uh, or uh, I sit here like an idiot if I speak in English. So uh, please allow me to speak in Chinese. Try to make me smarter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you, you were allowed one, uh, one question uh, in yeah, Chinese. You can do some, a little bit of translation. I'm not an expert on trade issues, but regarding what was just discussed, I have a few things to say. The first is concerning the Made in China 2025 initiative and its threats to America. In what way can I address this? The rise of high-tech and new technology industries, of course, is closely tied to developed Western countries because we learned a lot from them. However, don't forget the vast Chinese market in return gave the application of high-tech and other new business models tremendous impetus that you can't find in other countries. Therefore, the internal factors that will determine the success of Made in China 2025 cannot be overlooked. We can't just attribute our success to opportunities given by developed countries. Meanwhile, we need to thoroughly consider how the massive market in China can provide a huge opportunity for the global high-tech industry and various business models. In the past, China had to copy from elsewhere. Now, other countries have begun to copy from China. I think careful consideration needs to be applied to whether or not the Made in China 2025 plan is a threat to other countries. Second, regarding China's manufacturing industry, don't forget, during China's period of economic opening during the 1980s and 1990s, the American economy was confronted with many difficulties. 
China's opening policy facilitated the transformation of traditional American manufacturing industries by providing a huge market. And at the same time, it also helped China's manufacturing industry develop very quickly in a short period of time. In fact, rather than a zero-sum game, this is a reciprocal relationship and mutual beneficial process. This period of history cannot be forgotten. Furthermore, when China entered the World Trade Organization, it was approved by the United States Congress, right? I believe when intelligent American politicians made the decision, they must have done some economic and political calculations. Has this brought about any benefit to American interests? Of course it has. This point should not be overlooked. So I agree with the central points made by the previous two speakers. I'm unwilling to use the word war to describe the current conflict. It will take a few months for the conflict to have real effects. And before that, for politicians, a couple of months is enough to carry out all kinds of negotiations, whether those be public or covert. Therefore, I'm not so pessimistic. Rather, I'm cautiously optimistic, because looking back at the history of US-China relations, whenever a new administration was elected, difficulties always arose, but all of them were solved eventually. So I am indulging myself with optimism. I hope that your your cautious optimism is uh, proved correct. There's there's a lot more, of course, to to Chinese international relations than just the bilateral relationship with the United States. I want to talk more broadly about Chinese foreign policy and how it's it's created. Tony, maybe you can help us to understand how we should understand how uh, the formation of Chinese foreign policy. Xi Jinping has. Uh, arrogated to himself many functions through his control of leading groups, and he has created, of course, this National Security Commission that he chairs, and which I imagine must have pretty considerable sway in determining Chinese foreign policy. So should we now understand China's foreign policy, its grand strategy, its major bilateral relationships, at least, as being directed or controlled by Xi Jinping himself? Uh, and if so, what are the implications for that? Uh, well, first, I don't think China has a grand strategy, so that that would get that question out of the way. Um, that's that's an interesting claim. I mean, but where's do you think the it's entirely ad hoc? Do you think that there is not? Well, there's there's grand slogans, um, but I think you have to look at actual practice. And I think if you look at actual practice, um, I don't think it's shifted very significantly, except in one area, which I'll come back to in a moment. I mean, I think. <clears throat> You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think the answer to your question is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that obviously uh, President Xi has taken considerable powers, recentralized a lot of control to himself. But, you know, China is not the China under Mao. And, and basically, you know, if we go back that far, most Chinese citizens, uh, Chinese organizations had no vested interest in what their external policy was or what the international relations were. That is obviously not the case any longer. I mean, you have very diverse interests within China, from the military interest, from business interest, uh, private business, uh, state-owned enterprises interests, uh, citizens wanting to travel internationally, wanting to do a range of different things. So it's a much more complex environment to deal with, and those kind of have to be meshed together. And they come together in somewhat simplistic slogans, you know, of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, or the China dream, uh, those sorts of uh, slogans, which, you know, are used to try and bring together a kind of national esprit de corps, uh, but I don't think they really resolve themselves very strongly into policy. 
I think the one exception uh, which we see is now with the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, again, I defy anybody to actually tell me what the Belt and Road Initiative is. I mean, I know there's official definitions, but if most of the Belt and Road Initiative is taking place outside of the Belt and Road, it doesn't count for very much. And there I think there's two interesting things, and it shows the influence of internal agencies on shaping policy. Because this was announced with a lot of fanfare, but pretty soon provincial organizations, different agencies at the center like the National Development Reform Commission, began to want to shape uh, one belt, one road to their own interests. So every province now has a belt and road plan. And of course, some of the southern uh, provinces uh, didn't like the idea that Belt and Road initially was only going out through Central, Central Asia, Asia right. so they pushed in, of course, and got a maritime um, uh, road. So you can see there's a lot of different interests that are very adept at picking up on slogans, playing them, and turning them to their own interests. However, of course, that is a key slogan, and this is where I think there's a problem, because it's now in the Constitution. And that means it has to work. And that means that people might take injudicious decisions. So I think uh, a lot of state-owned enterprises, for example, uh, they say they're only going to do commercial-based projects, but at the end of the day, they might come under political pressure to show that they're conforming with Belt and Road. And when we think about it, there's not that many uh, profitable projects uh, out there. So... Um, that is the one thing, I think, which has become a signature of Xi Jinping and may uh, be problematic. He clearly wants to take a strong role in being seen as an equal to the United States of America. And in many ways, I think that's justified. I mean, I think if we uh, leave aside restructuring kind of existing organizations, if we look at the kinds of new global challenges around global commons, global regulation, China has to be an equal partner, I think, in dividing, uh, devising the rules of the game. And I think that is something that uh, Xi Jinping is pushing for. And I think it's something that probably many Chinese people would support, that they would have pride uh, in their nation uh, pushing that forward. Hmm. Chang Jian, would you agree uh, with what Tony Tsai said about there not being a Chinese grand strategy? Do you think that there is one? Do you think that maybe looking at pronouncements from the 18th and now from the 19th Party Congress, especially uh, from the Congress itself and from the two meetings, that that coupled with Belt and Road being written into the Constitution, that rises to a grand strategy? <laughs> so uh, we have some misunderstanding about the China dream. We separate the China dream with the uh, uh, enhance the interest of what we, we call the Renlei, Shenming Gong Tong Ti. Okay? Like we live in the same room, we lie on the same bed, we have a different dream. <laughs> but nobody have a dream will damage the roof and break the windows, right? So we cannot separate the China's dream with the interest of the Renlei Shenming Gong Tong Ti. So what about the, uh, the the idea of grand strategy? I mean, that, that maybe clears up some of our misunderstandings about what is meant by China dream. But what about, uh, do you think that uh, if you look at the, the pronouncements that are now part of the, the Constitution uh, and this about China taking a more proactive role, uh, center stage um, in global affairs, does this not to you constitute 
a direction for Chinese strategy internationally? No, I don't think uh, the China uh, has this strategy. Uh, that means replace the United States to be a global leader. So, of course, we should take some responsibility, uh, especially in the uh, global society governance, uh, like the counter the terrorism and uh, solving global warming problems, sure. and uphold the uh, principle of the free trade. And also, we uh, should uh, do something to, uh, to, 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 to protect long uh, nuclear proliferation. proliferation sure. Yeah. Uh, with you, though. I, that, that, that not necessarily means if we take these actions, we take these responsibilities, means, oh, you will be global leader. No. We, just, we uh, should really, work really with the uh, other the big powers, and we should seek the ways like the multilateral uh, resolution. Yeah. Mm. All right. I, yeah, just a quick uh, uh, point to add to uh, what's been said. I think, um, in very general terms, I think there is a grand strategy, uh, and that is to to uh, reassume China's rightful place in the world. I think. I don't know how concretely it's been thought out, but I think that's what's uh, at work here. And if you think about the Belt and Road, it's essentially a, a modern-day version of the old Silk Road. And when the Silk Road was thriving in the Tang Dynasty, China was, in fact, the Zhongguo, the Middle Kingdom. It was the center of the world. And I think these days it's, it's, it's more vague, and it probably focuses on being the center in East Asia, not necessarily the world. But I think that's what's at work here is this after this long period of decline since the 19th century, China is moving to reassert and reassume its rightful place in the world. Yes, I, I mean, I, I agree with that. I think it's aspirational rather than an actual strategy right, right. that you can see working out on the ground. And as for the China dream, one of the most tangible things that I've seen of it is selling soap on television. <laughs> I mean, nearly every product now is banded as part of the China dream, you know. Wash yourself with our soap. It's great for the China dream. It's right. important to smell good. <laughs> so I, I'm saying with you, uh, Chang Jian, mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of commentators have suggested that if you look at the uh, the removal of term limits and couple that with some of the things that he said about the fulfillment of, of some of the most cherished parts of the China dream, they've interpreted this to mean the project of reunification, that uh, the sea will within the tenure of his term, uh, now seek to reunify China and Taiwan. What do you, what do you make of this claim? <coughs> Can I deliver in Chinese? Sure, I, I'm okay. gonna, it's quite uh, a sensitive topic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I don't want to use the official tongue to uh, give my response to your question, but I uh, should say something about this. Um, from the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949 until the present, the country has achieved a lot. However, we're still not a fully united country, right? Taiwan has not returned to the arms of its motherland yet. I suppose every politician has dreamt of realizing the reunification of their countries. Of course, I'm not referring to anyone in particular. What I'm saying is that every leader of the People's Republic of China would consider a fully united country as their important political ambition. But I myself am not sure as to how to realize the dream and whether or not there is a timetable. The reports of the 18th and 19th Party Congresses 
clearly indicate that by 2049, we will carry out the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. The country will become prosperous, the nation will develop, and the people will be happy. What is the meaning of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation? I think for China, it's a response to the more than 200 years history of humiliation, colonization, oppression, and being divided. From this perspective, you can use political imagination. But if we take the reports on the 18th and 19th Congresses as our primary source, it's safe to say that we want to achieve national rejuvenation by 2049. I personally don't want to wait that long, but my wish does not reflect the political leaders of China. As to how to solve the issue and which political approach to take, I believe Chinese politicians have the adequate intellectual capacity to figure out the plan. Of course, if some politicians want to divide Taiwan from China, we believe that the adoption of more staunch measures is also a possibility. If you want to know what Chinese people think in terms of what measures China should take to stop Taiwan from independence, I can tell you what the answer will be. There is no need to conduct a poll. So does the government need to listen to public opinion? Of course they do. So from this perspective, we definitely want to address the problem through peaceful measures. And I'm confident that Chinese political leaders are smart enough to sort out peaceful measures to solve the issue. Tony or Ira, do you want to add anything to that? Um, is that you're reading? So basically, in the 18th and 19th Party uh, Congress uh, statements, this setting this goal of realizing the great rejuvenation of the, the Chinese people by the year 2049, is this sort of an implicit uh, implicit call for reunification by the state? Um, you could read it that way, but I think you know, reality sinks in of what the consequences are. And I think, yes, if there was a peaceful reunification, most people would be quite happy uh, with that. But I think from Taiwan's perspective, that requires considerable changes on the mainland. I think it also, they would be watching very carefully with the way the mainland treats Hong Kong to see whether that is an integration uh, they would desire. Um, you know, I think the question is, is this really a crucial issue to Chinese people or not? I mean... If I ask, you know, Chinese people, you know, eating yao jie fang Taiwan, do you really want to liberate Taiwan? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> but then you say, okay, but the consequences of that would be the collapse of your economy. It would possibly be armed conflict, the United States of America. Oh, no, I don't want that, but I do want to liberate Taiwan. So I think it's not really thought through fully uh, what the consequences uh, of that might be uh, under those circumstances. And I think, um, you know, historically, the Chinese Communist Party has been very flexible. Uh, I don't know how many people in the room know, but for example, in the Gunjudi, in the revolutionary base areas, if you look at maps and stamps of the Chinese Communist Party, Mongolia is a part of China, indisputably. Taiwan is not. It was not considered. A part of the mainland. And so that changed historically over time. 
So in the past, China's been very flexible about what it determines as being part of its sovereign land and what isn't. I think the crucial question becomes what would international response be? And I think it would be very different if Taiwan declared independence. And as a result of Taiwan declaring independence, China moved against it. Then I think you would find less international support coming to Taiwan. Right. If uh, China were to attack Taiwan aggressively without it having declared independence, then I suspect there would be uh, quite a dramatic international response, which could have very problematic consequences for, um, for China. So I would agree with the previous comments that if it could move towards some kind of peaceful solution and resolution, then I think pretty much everybody would sign on to that. But we know the constraints are considerable. You know, China could look very different by 2049. The world could look very different by 2049. Mm-hmm. I, can I just add? Um, yeah, sure, uh, Kaiser. I, I have uh, I tend to have more simplistic views of these things and and tend to relate um, relate them to my personal experiences. Um, but I, I lived in Taiwan in the early '70s, which I guess is dating myself. But uh, Chiang Kai-shek was still alive. Taiwan was under martial law, uh, and then I lived in China first in 1979. And in the '70s, there was zero contact between the two sides. There were mm. propaganda billboards everywhere. Uh, and there was still technically a state of war. Um, if you look at what's happened uh, since then, and particularly in the last 10 years or so, huge trade flows, huge investment flows, huge tourism uh, back and forth, uh, it's a completely different world. There's something right. like 2 million Taiwanese now living in mainland China out of a population of 23 million. So that's a huge percentage of the Taiwanese population. Um, so it has always seemed to me that they were moving, the two sides were moving in a kind of a de facto way towards uh, reunification. And it was just a matter at some point of pragmatic leaders on both sides saying, okay, we've reunified, we're going to keep things the way they are, uh, the problem is solved. But, but it's obviously not so simple. And you have had now many years, the number of people who went to Taiwan from the mainland, there are not so many of them alive. Most of the people in Taiwan now don't feel any connection anymore to China, and they see what's happened there versus how Taiwan has developed and become a democracy and so forth. Right, so, so the time is both the ally and the enemy. Of, yeah, of so they have less interest in, in, in any kind of a reunification, and I think Chinese leaders see that as well and are getting impatient. So there may be increasing pressure for the, for the Chinese leaders to increase the pressure on Taiwan. Uh-huh. I want to move now to the topic of Sino-Russian relations. Uh, Tony, you might have heard that just the other day, China's newly appointed Minister of Defense, Wei Fenghe, along with State Counselor and former Foreign Minister Wang Yi, uh, visited Russia. Uh, they made statements that raised some eyebrows about the Russia and uh, the Russo-Chinese relationship, saying that Russia and China are closer than you think. Uh, so what do you make of this? And in the context of this deepening chill in Russian relations with the West, and in this context of deepening chill between China and the U.S., especially over, I mean, the, the, with Europe and, and, and the United States over this uh, alleged uh, nerve agent poisoning of, of an ex-double agent uh, and his daughter in, in the U.K. What do you make of, of this, this visit? I think if you look back over the last 20, 30 years, when there's friction with Washington, Russia and China always cozy up to one another. Uh, 
It's just sort of standard dynamics of the strategic triangle. And I think it's, you know, they, they want to put pressure on Washington by saying, look, you know, we can get together. This could be a problem for you. I think when push comes to shove, both for Beijing and for Moscow, the relationship to Washington is more important than the uh, Moscow-Beijing access. And, uh, you know, if the relationship improves with Washington uh, on either side, I think you would see um, less enthusiasm uh, for that relationship. I think, though, I mean, there are natural reasons, obviously, for them to come closer together, in part because, as you said, um, you know, the the uh, report uh, on security for the United States of America has uh, highlighted Russia and China as the two key problems uh, for the country moving forward. So you would think it would make sense for those two countries to come together around a number of issues. I mean, I think they've got a lot to probably share with one another about infiltrating elections in the West. I think <laughs> they probably have also got a lot to share about use of cyber uh, security, cyber issues. I would think that's probably something that was beneficial. But I do think, um, you know, there is still, of course, a history of mistrust uh, that goes way back. I mean, even though, you know, the Soviets created the Chinese Communist Party, both in terms of advisors and financing of the party, it was crucial in helping the Chinese Communist Party win the Civil War. It was involved heavily in the 50s. But then, there were always suspicions. There were always there was always mistrust, uh, which has always uh, flared up since. And I think one of the key areas it makes sense for Russia and China to talk together is about the Belt and Road Initiative. Because, you know, if I was Russia, I would be very nervous about where the Silk Road is going. You know, it's going through all the various stands, and that's been in recent years, really Russia's backyard and an area that Russia has wanted to seek control over. So China's expansion into those countries must be very disturbing, I would think, for Russia. And um, it's, it's not just in the backyard anymore. It's the front yard as well, right? I mean, with the 16 plus one initiative, yep. uh, China cozying up with Viktor Orban and, and with uh, the Polish government, even... I'm, Ending many, many years of hostility between China and Poland and yeah. the, the Czech Republic, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, I, I think China quite legitimately is building its own uh, sets of alliances and groupings. We had it starting with the uh, Shanghai, SCO, the yeah. Shanghai Cooperative Organization. Uh, we see it now with the 16 plus one. We see the way it tries to engage with the Southeast Asian nations. I think what is interesting is, um, you know, China has been able to move in in those areas where European Union investment has been weaker and where there has been moves back to more authoritarian uh, nature in the government. And I think there's a very interesting phenomenon happening within the European Union. Uh, Chinese investment in Portugal, Greece, and Croatia has become very significant. Which uh, are the problem children of the... Exactly. And you know, Portugal, it's taken over strategic assets that probably would not have been allowed in most other Euro uh, European Union countries. If you roll in then uh, its influence in Hungary, if you roll in the increasing influence in the Czech Republic, um, you know, it's beginning to form alliances 
in that perimeter uh, which those countries, you talk to people in Greece or Portugal, and they say, look, you know, the northern part of the European Union didn't come and help and bail us out. It left us in these problems. The Chinese are coming in and investing. They're taking up what you guys should have been doing. So what you're beginning to see and what I hear from some of the EU diplomats is that those countries now begin to form a block, uh, not 100% supporting China's interests, but often responding to things uh, within the European Union about rights issues, other issues in China. And so so I think it's been... Uh, it's been a mixture of strategic and probably incidental business opportunities um, that have come together to give uh, China a stronger voice and a stronger profile in those countries. But I think 16 plus one, you know, is just another example of as China uh, becomes uh, more influential in the world, uh, the more it's going to play a game. And you know, so, I mean, I think so, we, we talked hoc. about so, so, some of it's ad hoc, as you were saying. But some of it's ad hoc. But I think the other one I say, Kaiser, you talked about the uh, the one slogan, uh, whether it's keeping a low profile or biding your strength. The other slogan, which has really gone out the window, is that China does not interfere in the affairs of other countries. I mean, it does. I mean, and it can't help but. I mean, when you're that powerful economy, and when you're investing, when you're trading. You know, like the U.S., like the U.K., where I'm from originally, we are interfering in the affairs of other countries. And you do begin to film alliances with different parts of the political spectrum. So this sort of simplistic notion that uh, China's an innocent bystander that doesn't behave uh, in a way that other powers have behaved, you know, is coming under duress and I think doesn't apply any longer. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's good. It's just a reality. I was going to say that, I mean, it sounded for a while like you were talking yourself out of your earlier assertion that there is no grand strategy, but... Okay. Well, uh, I think, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, don't, I don't think there is the... I still don't believe there is the grand strategy. But, I think it's bits and pieces and ad hoc, and maybe, as Ira says, there's the aspirational aspect to it that as we get to the glorious 2049, which I probably won't be around to see... <laughs> Then, you know, everything will come together. Well, Advances you going, in Chinese medicine. <laughs> Probably not to happen. Okay, uh, uh, Chang Jian, I'm sure you have a lot of responses to yeah, this. Yeah, and, yeah, and feel okay. free to use Chinese uh, if you would well, rather. I don't fully agree with some of the points he made. If I make an investment in an area where I have business interests and some other properties, do I have to interfere in local politics to solve some problems I encounter? I don't think so. There are two points that I would like to make on the topic of One Belt, One Road. First, One Belt, One Road is not just building projects everywhere. The development and implementation of One Belt, One Road must respect market rules and the basic requirement of mutual benefits. So political safety should be taken into account when we make investments and buy properties. Careful thought must be given to these possible outcomes before forward progress can be made. In addition, China rarely interferes in other countries' internal politics for the sake of benefiting its own people. This, perhaps, is a method which other countries like to employ, but this is not something rooted in Chinese political culture. So I don't particularly agree with the point previously made. I'm not surprised at all. Um, so we, but it's we, actually we talked already, about... I mean, it's actually already happened where China in some Afri uh, elections in Africa has come out in statement preferring one candidate over another. There's tensions in Taiwan. Zimbabwe uh, may have been Zimbabwe a case. Zimbabwe is another they, case. Uh, yeah. I mean... 
you know, it, it's inevitable, it seems to me. It doesn't mean necessarily that it's gone in with that intention. But, but ultimately, you want to start protecting your trade, you want to start protecting your interests, and that's going to involve you in politics in the country. If, like if there's not. one geography, though, where sharp power uh, has come to the fore, maybe most prominently, it's in Australia, right? Where there's there's quite a de debate raging within our circles, right, Tony, about uh, about uh, the extent of, and the effect and, and what can be done about projection of, of, of so-called sharp power. Uh, is, is Beijing reacting at all to this criticism? Has, has it shown any hesitation, any signs that it might recognize that it has overstepped and provoked a real backlash? I don't know. I mean, I think some of the things have been exaggerated uh, in Australia. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, actually going back to the previous point, I'm not sure there's been a concerted attempt by the Chinese authorities uh, in the way it's been portrayed by some of the Clive people. Hamilton and such. And yeah, exactly. And that that's you know created a buzz, it's created a stir. But just think about the huge number of Chinese students that are in Australia, many of whom have nothing to do with this, have no interest in that those issues. So I'm I'm not sure and I to be honest, I don't know how deep it really goes. And I've I've heard you know, sensible Australian voices on both sides, and particularly most importantly Australian voices which have said don't demonize uh, Chinese citizens in this country because that is clearly not beneficial to Australia. It's not beneficial to China. And I think a lot of this has become, you know, overblown. Absolutely. Um, I think we can all agree with that. Yeah. And, you know, of course, you know, embassies, you know, they work. They work to promote their own interests. We know that in, in the U.S. they support certain activities. They don't like other activities. Um, but again, it doesn't seem to me uh, entirely abnormal uh, behavior in that case. Where I do think um, China maybe feels it overreached and has pulled back somewhat is in its relationship with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And there, I think, with the um, challenges around territoriality, uh, I think that created concern in some of the Southeast Asian nations. And so you saw somebody, even like Kisho Mababani, who's often been very sympathetic towards China, actually writing publicly that, you know, China needs to be careful not to sacrifice its long-term interests of a win-win strategy in Southeast Asia for short-term gains. That's right. And I think since those voices, and I'm sure those voices were said in the corridors of diplomacy, I do see a moderating of China's attitude that maybe it does feel it overstepped and overexerted uh, its capabilities. Ira, uh, you know, this, this whole debate on, well, we can start with Australia, but to what extent do you think it's, it's extensible to the United States? I mean, this is happening here, too. There's this conversation with FBI Director Christopher Wray uh, two months ago talking to the, the Senate Intelligence Committee and, and, and saying that the threat from China is no longer just a, a whole of government threat, but a whole of society threat. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people in this room hear words like that and really bristle and very, and worry about racial profiling, worry about things like that. So, uh, Ira, how's, what's, what's, what's your sense of how that's playing out here? Well, I think it's, it's, um, first of all, it's not a new issue. I mean, we have had, if you look back at, at, well, just talking about U.S., U.S.-China relations, if you look back, it's kind of waxed and waned, and, and 
fears of China have grown at various points and then receded, and then China is our best friend, and you know everybody loves the uh, the pandas and so forth. So you know, there it's it's inevitable. I think that there will be these kinds of tensions as the relationship grows. I forget the latest number. There's probably something like 250,000 Chinese students in 350, America. 350,000 students. Okay, and there's nothing like that, but still a much larger number of American students in China than uh, than there were in the uh, in the past. Um, trade relations. We talked about how big they are. The bilateral investment relationship is is very big, and much more investment coming from China now. So I think inevitably. In that kind of a complicated and intertwined relationship, you're going to see more of these kinds of concerns being raised. Um, but I don't know that materially it's that different from what it was in the past. And just a quick comment on Australia. Um, I don't follow China-Australia relations particularly closely, but I think for Australia, my sense is the tensions have, have calmed down. It's a very complicated situation because China is by far their largest export market. The investment from China is very big. The tourism flow from China is very big. Uh, so, but at the same time, they are a military ally of the United States. So it's really kind of a delicate balancing act for them. Let's talk about that military alliance and talk about this idea of the quad or how in, in recent uh, diplomatic parlance, we've re re revived this idea of the Indo-Pacific when we're re referring to it. Uh, how is this being viewed right now from Beijing? Is this the pivot part two? Is this maybe something worse? How, how, how is Beijing reacting to this idea of leveraging Vietnam and, and India, along with traditional allies, Australia, Japan, uh, to, to sort of corner China, contain China? <laughs> Quite a complex question. I'll divide my response into three portions. We all know China has 10 some odd neighboring countries, whereas America only has a couple. This makes the handling and strategic aspects of Chinese foreign policy incredibly complex. You just discussed the matter of relationships with neighboring countries, and India was brought up. We all know that India shows great promise in the world market, demonstrating rapid development. India hopes to undertake more influence in both the region and the world, because the country is becoming stronger and stronger. I can totally understand this aspect. Bearing that in mind, One Belt, One Road offers a window to examine China-India relations. Of course, China hopes that more and more countries will participate in the One Belt, One Road initiative. But we must understand that India has its own plans, projects and strategies to promote regional economic development. Here, a problem arises. Is conflict an eventuality between Belt and Road proposals and India's economic development plans? Of course it isn't. Rather, is there opportunity for integration? Of course there is. So it's still a subject to study as to how can these two huge new market players form a friendly, consistent, stable and reciprocal relationship between them while growing their own economies. The topic of Vietnam and other ASEAN countries was brought up, and as we all know, the South China Sea territory is an area of contention. Recently, China and Vietnam have carried out negotiations that will help bring about a good resolution to this problem. Of course, this encompasses other countries as well. We didn't hear many news regarding the issues in the South China Sea lately, and that's because the efforts from various sides are bearing fruit.
Australia was also mentioned. Not long ago, there was a variety of opinion about Chinese people on this matter. There are two aspects to this. One is Australia's internal politics. With more and more Chinese doing business and studying in Australia, the Australian government and society has to find a way to address this issue. Under no circumstances should people contemplate this issue through the means of demonizing Chinese people. I believe that in a, the accelerating process of globalization, where all sides are closely connected, the governments of these two countries must undertake cooperative measures and increase exchanges with one another. On the basis of mutual understanding, I think some solutions can be found to address the issue. I think one of two more topics before we leave off, and we can leave a little bit of time for maybe questions from the audience. Uh, the first, of course, is Japan. Really, since you know the the, the peak of of problems in September, sort of 2012, after the nationalization of of the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands by the Tokyo government, oh, things have cooled down a bit. Things seem to have calmed down quite a bit. Uh, is is that your sense of things? Uh, where where are where where do things stand? And then we're going to move to North Korea and end it there. But anyone wanna, who, who who's been watching China um, Japan? I actually got a, a couple of comments related sure. to, to the last question, and I'll try and bring in Japan. I mean, I think um, I think there's a very interesting report which was written by Blackwell and Tellis, um, which I think, to a large extent, if the Trump administration had a strategy in Asia, it probably would represent much of the strategy, with the exception of the trade issue. And their starting point is that the U.S. helped China uh, to get to its present state. But now the present state of China is that it's uh, the most singly important threat to U.S. dominance within Asia and also uh, globally. And therefore, they call for the shift in um, U.S. policy. And that, I think, is where they brought up this uh, Indo-Pacific idea and this idea of a quad. Now, people say that's not containment, but if I was sitting in Beijing <laughs> and I looked at all those things, like it would look a hell of a lot like containment to me. So I think there are questions of perceptions there. Walks like a duck. <laughs> right. I don't. I think the problem is I don't. I don't believe the Trump administration really has the patience to pull together effectively that kind of a strategy. What I see as worrying, though is uh, which others have referred to as an economic Asia, which is emerging, uh, which China is clearly at the core and clearly strong and dominating, and a security Asia, which is still has uh, the U.S. at the core, even though it's being challenged, but still has a strong network of alliances. And those two, you know, the fear is that they might just pull apart over time. And I think uh, the Trump administration deciding not to go ahead with TPP really uh, weakens the U.S. capacity 
to have knitted together an economic Asia and a security Asia. So I think they've weakened themselves. So we should count on the Trump administration's incompetence as the last best hope for peace in Asia. <laughs> or, or well, go- the trouble is, of course, he is going to meet uh, with the dear leader uh, from North Korea. And whether that is a good sign for peace or not, I think is debatable. Maybe we but can on talk the North question Korea of right Japan, now, um, yeah, I think there is uh, clearly uh, an improvement in relationships. I mean, I think um, Japanese businesses, you know, also became quite disillusioned with the prospects for their investments in China. I think the Chinese government began to realize just how what an extensive role Japan has played in China's development in recent years. I mean, it can't let go entirely the kind of anti-Japanese rhetoric because that's crucial to legitimacy going all the way back to the anti-Japanese war. But I think they saw it as detrimental and have moved to improve uh, the relationship considerably. The so last topic is Jin Sanpang from Beijing. Kim Jong-un's recent trip to Beijing, uh, a lot of mystery around this, a lot of, of speculation about what's happening. I'm going to throw it open to the three of you. Uh, what, what do you I mean, what have you heard? Have you heard that, this, that he came as a supplicant? Have you heard that he secured any kind of a, a, a security commitment from, from China? Have you heard that he, this was a response to Beijing actually having exceeded the UN mandates for sanctions on, on, on North Korea? What's actually happening? Does, does anyone have a clear idea? I mean, I'd love to hear the Beijing perspective first. First, I'd like to comment on the Japan issue. You can see that recently there are signs of a warming up of relations between China and Japan. However, during our observations, we are unsure whether these signs of warming up can really persist. So in this context, you must have noticed that we have very rarely heard of debates about the Diaoyu Islands. So why are things warming up? My own observations suggest that there are four elements worth attention. The first one is that we all know Nuclear disarmament on the Korean peninsula will not only benefit the greater region of East Asia, it is also favorable to Japan. The Japanese side must be aware of what role China is playing in it. The second fact is the close relationship between China and Japan's economic development. There is a large amount of Japanese goods in the Chinese market. A massive number of products are imported from Japan into China. Moreover, the two countries are tied closely in terms of tourism and cultural exchange. We can see that while there have been ebbs and flows in China-Japan relations in general, the economic tie remains robust. Thirdly, as China's national strength continues to grow, the international community is hoping China will undertake more responsibility within the global community. China is also hoping to take on more responsibility through mutual cooperation. This type of responsibility makes Japan realize that to solve some of the problems in the global community, China is an indispensable partner. Number four, of course, is a historical reason. There are two meanings. One is negative, which refers to the history of Japan's invasion of China. Until now, many Japanese politicians are still unwilling to address this era. 
But if we look at this period and expand it and analyze it in a larger context, these two countries have had, for the most part, a very close relationship. So for people from these two countries, especially Japanese people, they have a very complex sentiment towards their Chinese counterparts, given the long history and some misunderstandings and confusion in modern politics. So, when we analyze China-Japan relations, this type of shared historical and cultural connections cannot be overlooked. In China there is a saying, one who understands current events is of great talent. In other words, in the international community, one should be informed of the latest changes that are taking place. Japan, as a member of the international community, must adapt itself according to these changes rather than be resistant to them. From this perspective, I can analyze the signs that suggest a warming of relations with these four factors. Okay, we'll let Jin Saipang wait a minute. One more question. Related to your second point that you just yeah. raised, which is really interesting, and I, I'd be curious especially to hear from Ira on this. I, I, it just occurs to me that uh, you know Japan is another very, very large trading partner with 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 China, of course. Are tariffs, if they do go ahead in the, at the end of May, are they going to 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 uh, increase China's propensity to import from Japan? Is it going to increase the the, the trade and maybe um, sort of tighten the network of trade within East Asia uh, between China and other American allies like Australia? Is this going to be a collateral effect of tariffs? Yeah, I, th I think it could be, and I think that actually works on, in both directions. As I mentioned earlier, if the U.S. Puts tariffs on Chinese products. It's not going to bring those jobs to the U.S. It's going to force U.S. companies to find other suppliers in foreign countries. I think similarly in China, if if they put tariffs on U.S. products and inputs and make them more expensive, a lot of those imports will shift to other suppliers, Japan, Korea, and, and elsewhere. I think that will work in both directions. Right. I just wanted to confirm my hunch. Mm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Finally, Korea. Who has something to, to, to say on this, this, this mysterious visit? Well, let me kick it off if I could. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any inside information on, uh, on the recent trip, although it was interesting to watch the reporting in the States about this, the train pulling into Beijing, the mysterious <laughs> train, who was on it. I don't think it was that hard to figure out who was on it. <laughs> um, but, but I have to say it really worries me. First of all, um, as far as I know, there's not much expertise left in the U.S. government on Korea. Joe Yoon, who was the senior guy in the State Department on Korea has retired. Uh, they wanted to make uh, Victor Cha Victor, U.S. Yeah. ambassador to South Korea. He had been uh, the, uh, the Asia guy on the National Security Council previously and has a lot of expertise. He, he declined the, uh, the appointment. Don't worry, there's always Jared Kushner. You can always there's always Jared Kushner, yeah. <laughs> um, my understanding is that there are some, some secret talks between the CIA and uh, North Korean counterparts, um, and they may have expertise, I don't know, but it still really concerns me, not that Trump particularly listens to advisors anyway, but there are a couple of, there are many scenarios for how this will play out, assuming it happens, but a couple of them really worry me. One is that Mr. Trump goes and uh, Kim says, um, if you agree to uh, sign a peace treaty with us and pull your troops out of South Korea, we will denuclearize. And Trump goes, great, it's a deal. My predecessor couldn't have done this. Hillary Clinton <laughs> couldn't have done this. Only I can do this. And if, if that happens, you will see an arms race in Korea, Japan and South Korea uh, in the in East Asia. I mean, Japan and South Korea will start potentially looking to acquire nuclear weapons, or uh, they they don't get anywhere. And Mr. Trump, who's notoriously impatient, throws his hands up, goes home, and says, "Well, we tried diplomatic channels; they just don't work. So now uh, Mr. Bolton <laughs> will take the lead on our uh, on our North Korea policy." So uh, now there are other scenarios, and what I hope happens is that. 
normally a, a summit like this would be at the end of a long diplomatic process. This may, may be the beginning of a long diplomatic process, in which case, it, in which uh, the two leaders say, okay, let's move towards denuclearization that can be verifiable, and we will move concurrently towards U.S. concessions that North Korea wants. That's what I hope will come out of this. I think in Trump's eyes, his greatest accomplishment is not inciting this conflict with China. I believe his greatest accomplishment will be to find a solution to the nuclear issues on the Korean Peninsula. Regarding Kim Jong-un's visit to China, what you just discussed, I am on the same page as the rest of you. I have no inside news from Beijing. But I can look at a few aspects regarding the situation. China has an unwavering attitude towards the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Meanwhile, China insists to uphold six-party talks to resolve this issue. Of course, we're more than happy to enjoy the benefits from bilateral negotiations between North Korea and America without doing anything on our side. However, the complicated nature of the Korean Peninsula issues determines the involvement of many sides other than just North Korea and the United States. In regards to what you just said about the visit by the Russian Minister of Defense or Wang Yi's visit to Russia, these are not just bilateral communications between China and Russia. It's a tradition for China and the U.S. to keep some diplomatic channels open when it comes to important issues. So regarding Kim Jong-un's visit to Beijing, or the meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un that is approaching, it's normal for China and Russia to discuss such huge matters in their talks. Concerning the future of the Korean Peninsula, I believe Trump should be aware of two aspects. The first is that China's role in the situation is still incredibly important. The second thing Trump should be aware of is the complexity of the issue. For China, we of course want to separate trade issues from political matters. However, when it comes to core interests of a country, all aspects should be taken into account when making a decision. I have confidence in the leaders of these two countries, especially Trump. The professor just raised the questions as to who should be held accountable for the decisions made by the U.S. government. Should it be Trump? his aides, or his consultants. I genuinely have no idea. If you guys in the US don't know, how can I know? That's why I've been following Trump's Twitter closely. <laughs> I'm trying to understand what he's thinking today, and I wonder what he will do tomorrow. Tony Sage, last word to you on North Korea. Um, well, in terms of your original question, um, I do think it does seem that China did put a lot of pressure on North Korea to bring uh, Kim to Beijing. And in that sense, I think even though he, of course, his own press announced it very uh, triumphantly, I think it was very much as a supplicant. Um, I think the, um, the core problem, of course, is that everybody wants to denuclearize Korean Peninsula. But I think the problem is that the bottom line for America and the bottom line for China are somewhat different, in that America perhaps doesn't care so much if North Korea collapses, uh, doesn't see that as a major negative, um, as long as it doesn't collapse in a chaotic way when it already has nuclear weapons. But of course, I think China is much more concerned and it would like a gradual transition. It's tried for years 
to get the North Korean leadership to look at the Chinese model of development uh, to try and move the economy forward, and they haven't really listened. And I think, of course, China's concern is uh, collapse would bring uh, ultimately the U.S. and U.S. troops potentially up to the border. But, of course, um, the danger, uh, including uh, for uh, China, is, as Iris said, the incentives for Japan, for South Korea, and a whole range of other countries to then develop their nuclear options, which seems to be quite capable for all those systems, makes it an incredibly dangerous uh, place. So um, it does seem that now we seem to have shifted away from the earlier six-party talks uh, to a much more reduced uh, group uh, to try and resolve this with uh, North Korea, South Korea, China, and America taking the key role. But I do agree that I'm sure they must have talked to Moscow uh, about this during uh, during those visits, and I'm sure they will keep uh, Japan informed. But um, one of the questions is, you know, would the North be willing to give up its nuclear development program in return for some kind of peace and security treaty and uh, promises by the U.S. to stay uh, to the south and maybe even reduce the troop numbers. It's uh, it's a gamble, and I think impossible to say. And and just one last point on on that last point. If you look at what Trump, President Trump, is saying about Iran, no. that yeah. that can have an impact on whether North Korea might be willing to. Right. To, I mean, yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't help North Korean confidence in anything exactly. the United States says if it can yeah, exactly. simply renege on, on a, yeah. a very important agreement. Yeah. 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 Very good. I, I want to thank all of you, uh, Zhang Tanjian and Ira Kaysoff and Tony Sage for, for joining us on this grand tour of, a, of, of Chinese foreign policy around the world. And I want to thank all of you for joining us here today, too. So uh, let's hear it for our, our terrific panel, even though it was all male. <laughs> <laughs>